Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm privileged to speak to you on the baptismal life. Let's start with this idea. That baptism is not a one-time event, even though it's a one-time event. It is something that gives you identity. It gives you something that lasts, not just for this life, but eternity. Something happens at baptism, and we're going to explore that. The other thing uh, to think about when we think about the baptismal life is that this is something um, that is very controversial in our world today, in our evangelical-minded United States of America. And so we tend to, as Lutherans, kind of put the baptism question to the side, right? And so we say, yeah, yeah, we do this baptism thing, but we're sort of kind of embarrassed by it. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of people, if we gave them truth serum, would say, we're sort of Baptists that baptize babies. And that's really the only difference between us and the great evangelical, uh, influential churches in America. But I'm going to suggest today that baptism is at the core of our identity and at the core of what it means to be a Christian. And so the question becomes, as we apply this, how can we think about this, teach this, and talk about this, especially when it comes to evangelism, and I'm going to use the word apologetics as well later, without being jerks, right? Without saying, throwing the Bible at somebody and calling them heretics. How can we get people to see that baptism truly is this wonderful, wonderful gift that God gives us? Now, uh... We're not working here. Nothing's working. There we go. All right. With all things, I, I apparently got a plant there. All right. With all things, we need to start in the Old Testament, and we start all things in the Old Testament with creation. So. Let's think about what happened at creation. So, um, at the, in the beginning, there is God the Father, and there is the Holy Spirit hovering over the deep. There's water, there is spirit, and there is the Father, and then there is also word, right? There is word. And when God speaks, his power has creative power. He can create something, what we call ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so uh, when, you, when you write a test on, on Genesis 1 and you ask the kids, uh, how did God create the heavens and the earth? Make sure they don't say power, right? Make sure they say with his words, because it is very important. Words are important, as you know, but God's word does something more than just our words. It can create out of nothing. I would go so far as to su suggest that we are people of words, we're created by words, we are to primarily interact with each other through words, we are primarily to interact with truth through words, we are all about words, and we are to take God at his word. It's words, words everywhere, and this is really important in our society right now, because all of our problems in the culture really boil down to attack on words. Can words actually do things? Can words get us to truth? Can I, just, can I just declare something with my words and create out of nothing? 
Can I just identify something or someone or myself? Can I do that with my words? It's really a, a complicated but really fascinating idea to think about the power of words, so let's do that just for a second. Um, the power of words uh, goes beyond just corresponding to truth. So I, I, I put together three letters, P, E, W, and this is going to then have a correspondence to this wooden thing, this wooden bench here, and I correspond that word to that object in the world. Fair enough. But words actually can do something more. They can create states of affairs. Now, I just said that God's word does something more than our words. It means that he can create something out of nothing, ex nihilo. But that doesn't mean that our words are insignificant. In fact, because they're patterned after God who gave us words and Christ who is the word, our words can also create things. They can create states of affairs. So if I would, um, if I would use a string of misogynistic or racist slurs at you, those words go out of my mouth and they create a state of affairs that cannot be changed. Or when you were in maybe college or something and you were dating somebody and you got up the courage to say those three little words and you put those words out there, you can't take them back. And the relationship will be changed forever, hopefully for your sake, for the better, and not the worse. So words go out and they create things. Just like God's word went out and created something out of nothing. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And your words, pattern after God's words, can do the same thing. It just can't create out of nothing. We have limitations, of course. All right, so let's just think about that just for a second. I wonder, and this has to do with our preaching. This has to do with, with uh, I would argue, uh, one, of the, one of the issues with modern preaching. I'll come back to that. In the modern world, and what I mean by the modern world, think like after the Reformation Renaissance until about 2000. In that modern world, um, we were very scientific, and we went by reason. We all kind of know our history a little bit there, and we can understand this is the, the era of, of great technological advancements, uh, scientific revolution, medical advancements, and then the information age. Okay. In that time period, we sort of dismissed the spiritual a little bit. And so we, we, we put the spiritual up in heaven, and it's not down here anymore. So the deists said that we have an impersonal God who sort of just spun this universe into order and then said goodbye. Uh, the atheist, of course, just says there is no spiritual realm. There is no God. There's no soul. There's no angels. You're just biology and chemistry. Even religious people split the physical from the spiritual as well. The spiritual was up there or only in my heart and not so much kind of this physical manifestation. It was a split between the physical and the spiritual. And because of that, humanity became kind of the be-all and the end-all, right? We don't really need God. We can kind of advance. And given enough time and technological advancements, we could probably overcome everything, maybe even death. 
maybe even death. And so some people even froze their heads, thinking that someday we'll figure out how to regenerate things. All right. What we did then is we thought that we were over everything. Not just a part of something, but over things. And so, so we look at nature and we study it and we categorize it, great. And, and we put things under a microscope, right? And we're looking over these things and that meant that the things are sort of static. They're not really moving. We can control them and categorize them and we can put them into places. And we did this with words. We did this with words. We thought that the words were kind of on a page and they didn't move. They were kind of just there and we can look over them. And you did this as educators, right? You still do this as educators. By ruining reading for third graders, by, by making them diagram sentence after sentence after sentence. It's necessary, but we lose something, don't we? And the idea that words are just there and we kind of move them around, I think kind of flows into our, uh, the way pastors think very often, right? It was a necessary thing that in college and seminary we learned all these languages and we learned all of the uh, declensions and we diagrammed sentences and we did all this kind of stuff. It was a necessary thing, but remember, pastors, our seminary professors always telling us every once in a while that you don't read the scriptures as much as the scriptures read you. And we're like, that's cute. That's profound. I don't know what that means, but it's there. I wonder if we think that words are static rather than living. Right? So the opposite of static would be something that moves. And the ancients always kind of thought that, that something, if you wanted to distinguish between something dead and alive, the alive thing moved. It moved. So it moved by itself. So when you hear about God describe his word, he talks about it as a sword, he talks about it as a living thing, he talks about it as a moving thing. In Romans chapter 1, St. Paul says that the gospel word in particular, the gospel promise, is the power to save. And the word that he used there in Greek for power is dynamis. It's where we get dynamite, explosion. But it's also where we get dynamic. If something is dynamic, it's got some juice. It moves. It goes and it does something. And so we're over here, over here, um, you know, looking over words, but they're going off the page and they're going and they're doing things. They move, they're dynamic. I, I wonder, back to the, maybe the, the, the problem with modern preaching, is that when we look over at the people in the pews, we primarily think of ourselves as teachers and the people in the pews as students and I have to deliver information to them. This is problematic because it assumes that our problem is ignorance and the solution there is more information. It's a very modern, very American, and a very evangelical way to think about humanity and about words. It's also kind of a Greek thing, platonic thing. You just gotta give people information. But I'll tell you that we have information. Like we know how to, we know how to merge on a freeway, right? We know that if you leave enough space and people, and people merge in, we don't have backups, right? 
We all know how to, how to zipper merge, but here we are. The problem was not a lack of information. The problem was so, something so much deeper than us. I can't let that person in because, because then I'll be late or something like that, right? We have this kind of law-oriented idea of I got there first, that kind of thing. You have lots of information on how to make your life better, but here you are, but here you are. And so I wonder if, if I think the spiritual problem is a lack of information, and if I just give people the information, then the problem will be solved, I'm kind of spinning my wheels. And so very often I think our preaching ends up preaching about the gospel rather than preaching the gospel. I think there's a profound difference. Preaching about the gospel rather than preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel is first order proclamation. God died for you. Let me proclaim this to you. And it means that I understand that God's word is dynamic. It can go and it can do things. It's not magical, but nor is it static. It's somewhere in the middle. It's dynamic. Still needs understanding. And hopefully you learn something from the sermon. But hopefully it's more than just the geography of the Sea of Galilee or some other information. But rather that you hear the gospel and the gospel comes and it does something to you. So back to creation. There was water, there was spirit, there was a voice, and there was the word, and what was created was this universe out of nothing because God's word has creative power. When you were bought, brought to a baptismal font, maybe one like this, there was water, there was spirit, there was a voice, there was words, and it was no less miraculous that God created out of a dead heart a living and active faith. And so the moment of creation in Genesis 1-1 has a parallel to each and every one of your baptisms and the baptisms of everyone in your pews and in your classrooms. And that's profound. That's a very big deal. And so we start off with this idea of water, creation, word, and stuff like that. All right. Let's go to the next water event in this Old Testament imagery. All right. How many, how many sides does this font have? It has eight sides. And most fonts have eight sides. And we heard about it in our in our uh, lesson devotion today, why eight sides? Because there was eight people in the ark, Moses and his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. And at that moment, not only was that all of humanity, it was the church. And think about, think about this water event in baptism. So water, by the way, is something that you need for life, but also destroys life, right? Water is this thing, it's, it's very profound. The ancients were really about water. They thought, they thought in terms of fluids rather than information like we do. And fluids matter, including water. So the seas were some a scary place. That was the scary place. We don't think about sea as a scary place because we can fly over it, right? But, but all, of the, all of the bedtime horror stories had to do about the seas because it was chaotic. 
That's where the monsters lived, right? This was a, this was a, a risk if you went on the water. The water was a scary place. But water is also the source of life in a very profound way. You need water, and yet water will destroy. If you, you need water, right? But water can destroy. So imagine a tornado ripping through your town, and one of the things that you're going to think about is, do I have access to water? But the second thing that you're going to think about is, the water in my basement is going to do some damage. And so water does damage, but water is also necessary for life. And it's something that's very hard to control. So think about the floodwaters, both destroyed and saved. The floodwaters destroyed the sinful world, but that same destruction lifted the ark up so that the church and all of humanity was saved, eight in all in the ark. Yeah? So there's a lot of baptismal connections here, and St. Peter makes them, not just about eight, but about the water that saves. It puts you into the ship. So the picture of the ship of the church uh, is a powerful one. You're safe in the ship, going through this rocky world that's full of waves and winds and tsunamis and all the rest. You're safe in the church. You're safe in the church. Uh, when I was a real pastor, um, I, uh, I had a church like this and a town like this and a font like this. And uh, we had a preschool, and I would bring the preschool kids in. Our building was a little bit taller, and it had wood, and it really looked like an upside-down ship. This looks like a hull of a ship as well. By the way, you're sitting in the nave, right? Navy, right? And I would have the kids lie down on the, on the, on the carpet there and look up and say, it looks like a ship, doesn't it? Right? And then I would talk about the ark, and then I would talk about the ship of the church, and then I talked about how they're safe in the ship. And they were brought in through water, through baptism. Right? And the font was such a big deal. I made such a big deal about that with the little kids, which is kind of cool. Like, I had mine in the back because it symbolized the entrance into the church. Um, and so, you know, a little kid walks in here. This is majestic. Just think about what a big font would be if, it, if you were that small. And so I'd lift them up, and I'd look in here, and I'd say, I remember baptizing those kids. I remember that. And when they walked into church every day, they, they would walk past the font, and hopefully they would recall this idea of baptism, the ark, the flood, the ship, all of that kind of stuff. So our architecture teaches us something as well. So the flood, entrance into the church, water destroys and, and gives life and protects life. By the way, this is getting ahead of myself here, but... But baptism is, is a violent thing, just like the flood was a violent thing, right? We, we warn ourselves about this, that uh, when we teach the story of Noah and the ark, we have to do more than it's a floating zoo, right? That this, was, this was a horrific thing. This was people fighting for the highest bit of ground and holding their children up before they were, they were thrown away by the winds and the waves only to have a horrific death at sea. This was a, a violent ripping apart of stuff, of life. It's a violent, violent thing. And our baptisms, with all the prayers and the cakes and the, and, the, and the pretty dress and the pictures and the grandparents and stuff like that, actually is a violent thing. It's a violent thing. It's a drowning in the waters of baptism. It's a death of the sinful nature and a resurrection of the new nature. 
something happens, right? It's actual, actually a violent scene, this baptism. So kind of once in a while, you gotta, you gotta balance that out a little bit. Okay, all right. Interrupt me with anything, by the way. We will have a, one of these periods where we'll, we'll break into groups and discuss some stuff, but feel free to interrupt me at any time. All right. Um, th there's lots of water stories through the, the Old Testament. I think there's a, there's a red line through the Old Testament and into the New Testament that has to do with water stories. Not all of them have to do with water, but all of them have to do with baptism. And then we get to the baptism of Jesus, and then there's another red line of water stories and stories that relate to baptism. And so that jumps off the pages of scripture and into the hands of a baptizer and into your life. And this baptism then brings you into the life of Christ and into the story. I won't be able to get through all of them, but I'd like to get through some of them. We've already done creation, flood. Now I'd like to do Moses for a second. We have to reckon with St. Paul's words that, that Christians are baptized into Christ, but, but the, the, the Israelites were baptized into Moses. <laughs> what does that mean that they were baptized into Moses? Well, well, we'll put a pin in that and come back to that to the Exodus. But I'd like to just talk about Moses for a second, too, in particular, um, his, his burning bush experience. And this, this tangentially has to do with baptism, but I think it, it has more to do with identity which is wrapped up into baptism, of course. But also, also, I think it applies to a lot of stuff that's going on in our world today. All right. Moses would have never said this because he lived in the ancient world, but he was having an identity crisis. So think about it. Moses is Hebrew by birth, but he is Egyptian by his upbringing. Yeah? And so he's got Hebrew blood pumping through his veins, but he's living in not only the Egyptian part of Egypt, but in the royal part of Egypt. And, and you don't think that it dawned on him very slowly, sometimes our dawning is very slow, um, you don't think it dawned on him as he became a young man um, that his blood was enslaved by the people that he was dining with? And so I wonder if he asked this question, who am I? Who am I? Am I Hebrew slave or am I Egyptian slave master? Right? And I think it probably bothered him. Um, I don't know how it could not have. Because he wondered who he was and probably felt a little bit of guilt about not being with his people. And I think it comes out in a fit of rage when he sees that Egyptian slave master beating the Hebrew slave, and he intervenes. He intervenes so violently that he ends up killing the Egyptian and buries the body in sand, which is a bad place to bury things. And he gets found out. Now, notice the reaction that he gets from both of those sides, the Hebrew and the Egyptian side. At one, you one side, you think maybe he's a hero. Finally, Moses is coming to the rescue of his people. But the Hebrews don't say that. They say, great, now it's going to be worse for us. You think you can come out of your little, your little ivory tower here and do one thing, and all of a sudden you're one with us? Not to get too crass or political, but 
He's the house mean girl, right? He's living in this privileged place where his blood is out there being enslaved. And he comes out of and does one thing. They're like, get out of here, Moses. Now, I'm, I don't know this for sure, but I think if I had to choose, I think that if Moses was fully Egyptian, that the Pharaoh would have swept this under the rug. So he killed, he killed a mid-level whatever. Sons of rich people do things all the time. But he is not accepted as the full son of the Pharaoh, it seems, because he's murdered an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew, he's something less than the Egyptian, to the point where he flees for his life. And so I imagine him in, you know, Midian, like just kind of, nobody likes me. I'm all alone. I don't know who I am. Here I am, just kind of having this pity party himself. And then he sees this, he sees this bush that is not being consumed by the fire. And so he goes over there and God says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And God calls him to lead the people out of Egypt. And it took a while, dawning takes a while for us, uh, but I wonder if it finally dawned on Moses, I'm actually the perfect guy for the job because I'm Hebrew and yet I have a connection not only to the Egyptian culture but to the Egyptian elite. He's the guy that, like a Hebrew slave knocks on the door of the palace, he's not getting in, but Moses can get in and talk to the Pharaoh. He knows which forks the salad fork. He knows how to do this, right? And so he's actually the perfect guy for this. But he's too wrapped up in his own self-righteousness and pity, and he makes excuses, right? We know the story. He makes these excuses. And his, and his, last, his last attempt to get out of this calling is to say, well, they're going to ask who, who, who sent me, and so what shall I say? What is your name? What is your name? And... <clears throat> I'm reading a little bit into this, but I don't think it's, it's wrong. When Moses asks, what is your name? He's really asking, who are you? Because names and identity were wrapped up in the, in the ancient world. Side note, I think this would be a great beginning of like a discussion for a teen class, maybe even, um, even for, 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 the, for the middle school grades or, or, or adult Bible class. Have everybody write down who they are. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I ask you the question, who are you? Some people will give them their, na their names. Some people will give their country, American. Some people will give their job. Uh, the super pious will say child of God, right? Um, but it's a very interesting question to ask and to see how people answer this question, who are you? Because it's through that lens that you see what a human being is. I already said that the ancients sort of looked at us through the lens of fluids. Today we tend to look at ourselves through the lens of information or consumers, right? We tend to look at ourselves as we're consumers. Sometimes I think we think of ourselves as students and teachers. That's fine, but it can't be the complete way of looking at ourselves, right? Okay. So when Moses says, what is your name? He's saying, who are you? 
And of course, God's answer is the best answer ever, the best mic drop moment of all. Who am I? I am. I am. I am. And when God answers that question, who are you or what is your name with I am, he's also answering the question that Moses really wants to ask, who am I? Who am I? Because whenever you ask, is there a God? Who is God? What does God do? What, what's underneath that is, what is, my, what is my standing before God? Who am I? Whether you, 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 you know it or not, admit it or not, you're asking an existential question, who am I? And when, when God answers, I am, it's the answer to both the question, who is God, but also, who is Moses? I always found it curious uh, as a kid, you know, especially in the Psalms, um, you know, the, the psalmist would say, God, you are my righteousness. Like, what does that mean, you are my righteousness? You're like, well, it's just poetic, whatever, move on. I wonder if there's something there that, that your true identity is the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God. And so when Moses asks, who are you, God? He says, I am. He's also saying, I am. I am your righteousness, Moses. I am your rock. I am your fortress. I am the vine. I am the door. I am this for you. And our identity is thoroughly wrapped up into the identity of God. So think about our culture right now, devoid of God, very often, you still have that nagging question, who am I? This is very profound because a true naturalist, Darwinist, atheist shouldn't ask that question, who are we? Or if they ask it, they should just answer the question, well, you're an evolved animal, here's your biology, here's your chemistry, here's your DNA, what are you talking about? Who am I? When we ask identity questions, we are begging for a spiritual, metaphysical, existential question that cannot fully be answered by biology. Right? And so those who are trying to reject the biology, maybe, of sex and gender are kind of on to something. They don't know it, and they have the wrong answer, but they're kind of on to something, that their identity is beyond just biology and chemistry. They're not atheists, at least not very good atheists because they're onto something beyond the physical. This is a very, very deep question. I would suggest to you that your identity cannot be, cannot come from yourself. It cannot be autonomous in that way. Uh, let me go down another tangent, if that's okay. I think there are four things, probably more, but four things that you did not choose. You did not choose to live. You did not choose your name. You did not choose to be a person of faith. Nor did you choose your status when it comes to righteousness or sin. None of you chose to live. You were given a name. You're a person of faith. And you were born with a status, sinful or sin. Let me go through. By the way, all of those you can reject, tragically, you can change your name, that's fine. You can tragically take your life. You can tragically try to, I don't know if you can get away from faith, but you can try to. And um, you, can, you can forfeit God's righteousness that he's trying to give to you. 
Uh, let's go to the third one, the idea of faith. We're going to come back to this when we apply uh, the idea of baptism and talking to people who are, who are maybe a little uh, fuzzy or, or maybe even uh, against infant baptism. What I mean about you being a person of faith is not, not believing in Christ or not believing in Christ, just the fact that you have to believe. You don't have an option. The atheist may say, I'm not a believer, but that's actually not true because you always have to go by faith. Your faith may be in yourself and your, and your reason and your ability to take in empirical evidence, but it's still faith. It's still faith. Um, you're always going by faith. Um, is this font here? Just ask this, this very deep question. Is this font here? And how do you know? Well, um, you have empirical evidence. You can see it. You can hear it, so to speak. You could touch it. I wouldn't taste or smell it, but you could do that too. Through the senses, you could come to the conclusion that that font exists in this particular time and this particular uh, place. Fair enough. You have good reason to believe that. But do you really know? Maybe this is a dream. Maybe we're in the Truman Show. Maybe, maybe you're hallucinating. Maybe we don't even exist at all. You're always going by a certain amount of faith. And by the way, you don't fully know anything. Now, if I would say to this font, uh, choose this font. Is it moving or static? Um, is it solid or not solid? You would all say it's static and it's solid. But those of you who teach science know that actually if you, if you go down to the molecular level, there's more space than stuff, and it's moving. I trust my eyesight so that I don't run into it, but there's something limited there. I'm always going by faith. I mean, it's, and quite frankly, it's not like you were in your mother's womb in the second trimester, and you're like, I think she's been pretty good to me. I think I'll trust her. That was not a cognitive decision of yours, right? So you're always trusting something. You're always a person of faith, and you have been given faith, and you cannot choose otherwise, right? Okay, so if these four things are given to you, you can only reject them. This is also true of righteousness. So Adam and Eve were not, were not created with a blank slate, and God's like, let's see what happens. They chose wrong. No, they were born with original righteousness. They were born righteous. They forfeited that righteousness because they said, we don't need that as a gift. We can do it on our own. We can be valuable. We can be right with God on our own. We don't need it as a gift. But righteousness, that is being right with God, same thing as justification, is always a gift. It was a gift to Adam and Eve. And the whole story from Genesis 3, 15 on the end is God trying to give righteousness back to the people and them going their own way. Righteousness is always a gift. It cannot be earned. It's always a gift. All right. Um, maybe let's, uh, well, we'll come back to that later, the idea of righteousness and the two kinds of righteousness. Yes, sir.
Um, sounds like you're after something. Okay, so um, I would, this is how I would say it, and may not answer your question, but I'll talk long enough so that you forget it. Uh, righteousness, um, I think it's more than just a status. I think we rightfully say I'm declared righteous. Declared not guilty is sort of the same thing. So, by the way, righteousness and justification in most languages are the same word. So um, righteousness, then, is always a gift. But it's also who I am as a saint. And righteous people do righteous things. So holiness, right, at its core is set apart for something. Right? So I think it, in some context you could certainly say I'm made holy. I mean, that's what saint means, to be made holy. So I got no problem with that. But if you're thinking in terms of, of like ethical virtue and what we would say is sanctification, yeah, I think it's fair to divide that up, that the righteousness that is a gift then produces righteous acts, holy acts. Uh, let, let, me, let me go a little bit further, and I think this will be helpful for you to maybe in the, in the classroom, whether it be confirmation or, or Bible class or or in, uh, in, in the grade school. Um, I, I like to do this. I like to say, raise your hand if you believe sinners go into heaven. And everybody raises their hand. And I said, you're wrong. Actually, the Bible's pretty clear about sinners not going to heaven. And uh, why can't sinners go into heaven? Because if sinners went into heaven, it wouldn't be heaven anymore. It'd be Gennaro, Ohio all over again. Right? Like, you can't come into God with your stuff, right? And God, who is holy and set apart right? It would blow you away, right? So holiness has that wrinkle to it as well. Um, so what does God do? God needs to make you worthy of his table. He needs to make you right with him. He needs to make you righteous. Yeah? He needs to make you righteous. Um, so it's not God just like winking like, hey, uh, you're, you're kind of naughty, whatever, come on in, or just profound he's forgiven the sinner. No, he makes the sinner not a sinner. So this actually, uh, we'll get into this a little bit when it, when it comes to like the, the, the clean, unclean distinction in the Old Testament, but I think it has a lot to do with table fellowship in the, in the Bible as well. Why, why, why were they so concerned with, with, um, with eating with Gentiles and then later in the New Testament eating with tax collectors and sinners? This is hard for us to understand, and that's why... Primarily because we, we think of ourselves primarily as either uh, animals or machines. It's with us, even with us in the church. So that when we think about eating, we think about it as putting fuel into the body. And so we're, you know, if you're a health nut, you're obsessed with putting bad things into your body because you don't put unleaded into a Lamborghini. 
and I'm driving down the highway and I see a billboard that says, fill up your gas tank and fill up your tank as well. Right? And, and, and no matter where you are, uh, when it comes to farming and food and, and, and all that, that political mess, um, you have to admit that America has an has a unhealthy relationship with food. <clears throat> the rest of the world, and I think one of the reasons is the rest of the world sees eating as a spiritual event. They don't distinguish spirituality from the physical so easily as we do. So when you break bread, this is, this is something that is beyond just putting fuel into the body. You never ate alone in the ancient world unless you had to. Right? We eat fast. Let's go, let's go on to the next thing. For them, it's an event. And it matters whom you eat with and whom you don't eat with. And we still have this lingering in our day today because if Vladimir Putin and Joseph Biden had a burger, the world would go ape whatever, you know? Why, just because they ate a meal? Yeah, just because they ate a meal. Because when you break bread with somebody, it's an indication of some sort of level of agreement, fellowship, and spirituality beyond just the physical elements that are there. And so for Jesus to eat with a tax collector, we look back and go, oh, those Pharisees, they're being so you know, exclusive. No, 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 no. This absolutely would have, been, would have been a crazy thing for him. But the difference is, is that when Jesus eats with somebody, the stink of the somebody doesn't come to him as much as the righteousness goes to that person. Oh, the stink goes on to him to the cross. M more on that a little bit later. So the idea there then is you, ha you, have to, you cannot come to the table without being made worthy. Remember that parable where, where it's, uh, you know, nobody comes to the wedding and so the master sends out all the people, uh, sends out the servants to bring in people and people are coming off the streets and we're like, Jesus is so loving to poor people. And then what's the last line? Then there was that guy who came in without wedding clothes and he threw them out into the darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're like, what? The gospel of the Lord. Why, why was he thrown out? Because he didn't have the righteous robe on. He tried to get in with his own righteousness. He tried to get in with his own holiness. He tried to get in and say, I'm deserving of this table. But he wasn't. He had to come in only with the righteous robes of Christ. So think about our teenagers in particular today. They have been told since, since as you and I were, since kindergarten, to believe in themselves, to, to, to just be the, their own person, to stick out of the crowd, and, and they're left with this, this existential crisis where they know that they're not worthy. Nobody knows that they're not worthy like a 15-year-old. And their only solution, according to our culture, is just to assert that they're worthy and to convince themselves that they don't care what other people think and to say, you need to accept me for who I am. And so their value, which is tied up in, I believe, their righteousness, are you right or not, their name, their identity, is all being generated from inside of themselves. And you can go around telling yourself all day long that you are this, that, or the other thing, but you're lying, and you know it. And you know it. 
if you're honest with yourself. And so this, this, this thing that's going on in our world um, has, has cultural roots that go back decades, if not, if not further than that. The idea that I'm, I am the captain of my ship and that I can identify, I can find my value and my righteousness from inside of me instead of saying these are all gifts that have to come from outside of me. This is Augustine, Augustine, right? Being curved outward or being curved inward. I would suggest that everything's outside of us. Our salvation's outside of us, our righteousness outside of us, our identity is outside of us, and our value is outside of us. I'm going way afield here, but let's just keep going. Uh, I teach apologetics at uh, both at the high school and the college level. And uh, one of the questions I'll start with is I'll say, uh, why are you more valuable than the squirrel? And then I say, if you don't get this answer correctly, why you're different than the animals, then we have no basis for human rights and then there's genocide. And it's fun for me because they, they all come up with these answers that they've been taught. We have a soul, we're rational, we're moral, whatever. I just rip them apart. And I go, we're still with genocide. We have to get this answer correct. And of course the correct answer is the image of God. But notice the image of God is a declaration that comes from outside of us. Because if I say I'm valuable, and you say you're valuable, and the only basis for that is your independent thought, what if I say you're not valuable? What if I think in the, what if I think in the, in the, in the worldview of evolution that you, who have a different, you know, uh, different uh, DNA, uh, are some not, somehow not as evolved as me, the German? Then I have no problem thinking of you, not the German, as a lower form and a pest, and what do you do with pests? Well, you exterminate them. And I can go about my day without any kind of uh, uh, moral crisis because that's just the way I think, right? So you have to, things have to come from outside of you, right? So for Moses, who is in his own little realm trying to, trying to find inside of himself his identity and his relationship to God and his value, Right? God says, I am your righteousness. I think, in, in, I think that's underneath it all. Okay. Uh, did, I, did I talk long enough to... Okay. Thank you. All right. Ooh, I like the exodus and, and the isodus. The exodus is the, is the exit. The isodus is the entrance. Okay. So if we look at our map here, uh, we see how Israel went through the Red Sea and eventually into the Promised Land. And um, this is a good way, when you teach this very familiar story, to make some baptismal connections. Remember, St. Paul said, you're baptized into Christ, but the Israelites were baptized into Moses. Why is that? Well, let's think about it. So uh, Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh, after uh, the tenth and final plague, finally says, get out of here. But then he changes his mind. He wants his slaves back. And if you think about the map, so, you know, draw this map on the board and say, think about it. So they go out of Egypt east, and they don't have anywhere to go. They can't go south, modern-day Sudan, and it's the wrong way. It's rough terrain. They can't go north to the Mediterranean. They don't have any boats. They're not seafaring people anyway. They can't go northeast, because remember who's there? The Philistine army is there, and, and, and God says, you'll be scared and turn away because 
you haven't, you haven't developed you know, an army just yet, right? Probably. You can't go east because there's another body of water, the Red Sea. They don't have any boats. And you can't go west because the Pharaoh and his charioteers are coming after them. There's a ticking time bomb here, uh, and they don't have anywhere to go. They need a miracle. They need a water miracle. And they get one. And so they're baptized into Moses through the water. The devil is destroyed, and they're given freedom. All right. Now, think about your baptismal day. Uh, if you don't remember, I'll describe it. Uh, your parents brought you to this font, and it was a procession of death. And quite frankly, you were trapped. You had nowhere to go. And the moment you were born, uh, the time, uh, the, the clock started. I mean, you were closer to death than you were when I began that sentence. Yeah? You're on, this runaway train is coming after you, this thing called death. The doctors can't save you from death. The government can't save you from sin. Your parents and your friends, they cannot help you. And the devils and his charioteers are coming after you. You have nowhere to go. You have nowhere to go because you were born into the slavery of sin. You have nowhere to go. You need a miracle. You need a water miracle. And just like the Israelites were baptized into Moses, so you're baptized into Christ, no less of a miracle, and now you're free. You're a free person. And, and, the, and the, uh, the Israelites always thought that. They always said, we're sons and daughters of Abraham, we're free people. And they say it in the New Testament, and you're like, mm, you're not. In fact, you are free for maybe 125 years between 586 B.C. and 1948. But they identified as free people because their event was the Exodus. It was their event. By the way, um, you should teach the Exodus as all of our holidays wrapped up into one for them, so the Passover. Think about it. It's emancipation from slavery. It's Independence Day. It's surrounded by a meal, and it has re uh, re religious connotations. It's Juneteenth Day, July 4th, Thanksgiving, and Christmas all wrapped up into one. The Exodus is the event, and that was their identity. They are free people. Maybe not right now, but we are free people because we're the sons and daughters of Abraham and Moses. Moses took us from slavery to freedom. You're free people even if uh, politically or even because of slavery in chains. You're free people because you're free from the slavery of sin. You're free people. But on the other side of baptism, on the other side of the Red Sea, it ain't tulips and cotton candy. It's 40 years in the wilderness. And your life here of trial and tribulation is like the wilderness journey. God's going to feed you, man and quail. It's going to be fine. It's still a good life. But it's rough, and you grumble a lot. Until you get to the end, when you are going to cross Jordan. So here's a euphemism that uh, African-American spirituals use a lot, but we don't. And I think that's too bad. Crossing Jordan is a euphemism from going to this life to the next. Not just because Elijah crosses Jordan and goes up into heaven, but because the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. You cross Jordan into the promised land of heaven. And water's always with you. Because that baptismal promise is always there. You're people of water. 
and people of water in this context are people of freedom. Notice the inheritance idea. If you're free people in the ancient world, that meant somebody needs to write a book 20 years ago on biblical freedom versus American freedom and how they're not the same thing. And one of the differences is free people in the ancient world meant that they could, they were, they were, they could inherit the land. Right? So you are, you have the inheritance of the promised land. And so crossing Jordan then, that euphemism uh, is about going from this life into the, into the inherited life. Uh, NBC had a show like in the early 2000s called Crossing Jordan. Anybody old enough to remember that? I, I watched one episode. It was about uh, uh, somebody working in the morgue who would solve crimes, of course. And her name was Jordan, and they called it Crossing Jordan. Right? Going, going into the, from this life to the next. So um, I, you should think about life then as a bell curve, right? So here you are, you're born naked. You'll die naked. We'll bury you, we'll put clothes on just because it's, you know, uh, but the clothes go pretty quickly. And uh, you need to be fed and have your diaper changed. If you live long enough, you need to be fed and have your diaper changed. You start to lear learn things, you start to lose things. Eventually, we'll give you car keys. Eventually, we'll take your car keys away, right? And you get to the top, which I don't know where that is. I don't know, 30s or 40s or wherever, and then it starts to go downhill a little bit. And if you live long enough, you start to lose these things, and this is God working on you. Because who's the most arrogant? Who's the hardest person to evangelize? Well, the person probably, like, 22 to like 62. Because that person's person ha is in control of their life as much as you can. And so you rely more and more on baptismal promises the closer you get to heaven because the more infantile you become and the more you're thinking about the inheritance on the other side of the Jordan River. And so what a cool way to talk about the Christian life and baptism talking about the exodus and the exodus. Really cool stuff there, I think. And the Jordan River, of course, is going to play a part um, later as well. All right. Anybody want to interrupt me? All right, we're going to keep going through some Old Testament stuff. All right. So there's other water stories in the Old Testament, <coughs> um, uh, more than we can go through here. But I do want to talk about the purification rituals. And notice that the, the water stories are becoming clearer, clearer, um, let's say, clearer analogies of, of, of salvation. Yeah? And it's going to culminate then in the baptism of Jesus in, in the Jordan. Um, again, I've been talking quite a bit about it matters what lens we look, what anthropological lens we look through. Are we primarily consumers? Are we primarily students? Are we primarily whatever? That, that affects the way I look at myself and the people I minister to. It's a good, it's a good practice to go through. Um, in the West, we tend to think things through a forensic lens. So and what I mean by that is when we describe, for example, God saving us, 
It's very, it's courtroom scene-ish, which is biblical, beautiful, and fantastic, right? So I'm on, I'm on uh, trial um, before God. And by the way, the prosecutor is the devil, Satan, the great accuser. He wants nothing more than God to have to judge me according to myself. And so, as you know, uh, there's a lot of evidence against me. I like doing this to the college kids. I go, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence against you. There's a running transcript of your thoughts. All your deeds are open before the court. And also, they have your browser history. And that's where, like, all the tabs go down. They're like, oh, yeah, I am guilty. And um, you're dead to rights, and the judge's gavel is about to go down, and your lawyer, Jesus, gets up and says, exchange my life for my client's life, and the judge's gavel go down. You're declared not guilty. This is justification, right? We, we, we all know this analogy. Uh, now, the, 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 the worst thing you can do is be your own lawyer, right? If you are, if you are your own lawyer, you have a fool for a client. And if you get up and say, Jesus, you're fired, judge me for who I am, then you're going to be judged on the basis of your right or wrongness. This is what St. Paul calls a righteousness by law. And this is not going to go well for you at all. Okay, so we think in terms of forensic, which is beautiful, fine, and great. But a lot of the rest of the world thought in, ter in different terms, and one of those different analogies was clean, unclean. And we don't think about it that way. And I wonder if it would be helpful and healthy for us to stop and think about it that way a little bit. I think it helps us understand baptism and the purification rituals of the, of the Old Testament. Okay, let me tell you a story of John Kleinig. Some of you uh, pastors probably know his name. An Australian uh, professor, Lutheran professor. Uh, there was uh, sometimes when he worked in Indonesia, apparently there's a large Lutheran contingent in Indonesia, this Muslim country who knew. And there's a seminary over there, and so he would go over there and teach for a semester, and he would preach in the local church. There's like 2,000 members or something like that. And he, he noticed throughout the semester that there was a lady who would come into the back five minutes late and leave five minutes early. She never came to Holy Communion, and she was dressed in black and had a veil on. So finally asked the local pastor, what's the deal with this lady? And he says um, she was sexually abused by like an uncle, and she considers herself unclean. And I think it was more than just, okay, she's in kind of a Muslim country. But I would imagine, I can only imagine, but I would imagine that if you were sexually abused, that you would feel unclean. And that the forensic way of thinking about sin and crime and justification and justice just didn't quite hit home because even if the guy goes to jail, you're still left with this. And no amount of cold showers is gonna wipe that away. She was unclean. This is profound when you think about sin because when we only think about sin as forensic, then it's like, well, I, 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 stole, I stole a car and I crashed the car, I gotta pay for a new car, everything's good and I move on. I pay my fine. But there's ramifications of your sin. You've hurt your wives. You've hurt your husbands, haven't you? Right? And there's no undoing that. The words go out and you can't take them back. Right? 
And so the idea of the transfer of sin in the clean-unclean distinction, I think, is very profound and still with us, and we should talk about that a little bit more in our pulpits and our classrooms, that the stink of sin actually affects people. And you can't just undo it by paying a fine, right? There, there is an uncleanness there. And sin, it's not just that you sinned and are unclean, but that you were sinned against and you are unclean. Yeah? You don't think that way. But I think the ancients definitely thought that way, and people around the world outside of the West think that way as well. So by the way, John Kleinig then decided to preach a sermon. He's an Old Testament Leviticus scholar, so he preached a sermon on clean and unclean distinctions, and then went away a couple two, three years later, he comes back for another semester, and it has a happy ending. Uh, this lady then, married, children, everything's great. She just needed to hear that she was clean. She just needed to hear that she was clean, right? That was the key there, right? And so it was a different way of thinking about it. So when we think about the purification rituals, I think we need to think about almost like a transfer of clean, unclean. So let's talk about this for a little bit. All right, uh, let's, we can divide law up in, in, in different ways. Let me just do it in three ways. You have your, you have your moral law. This, the moral law always stands, regardless of time and space. It's always wrong to punch somebody in the face for no reason. I don't care what culture you're from. All right, moral law, Ten Commandments. Then there is the civil law. This is for a specific time, place, and purpose. And the purpose is law and order. So in America, we drive on the right side of the road. In Australia, we drive on the left side of the road. And there's nothing moral or immoral about it, about the left or the right. It's there for social order, law and order, for a specific time, right now, specific place, Australia, specific purpose, law and order, all the civil laws. And then there are the cultural laws. In the Old Testament, we call them ceremonial laws. We have cultural laws, right? Um, we always, we always uh, do this in our culture on Thanksgiving or something like that. They're often unwritten. But there are things that tie, a bond, that, 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 that are the, the tie that binds a culture together very often. Okay. The subset of ceremonial or cultural laws in the Old Testament are a little bit different because these were written. Yeah. And the subset of those are, I would argue, catechetical teaching laws, but then also ones that were kind of cultural laws. The cultural laws, as you know, kept a hedge around Israel. So they made them different. Um, some of them you know, could be in both categories. So, I would say, don't, not eating pork or shellfish. The way they dressed, the beards, all of that kind of stuff were cultural things. Circumcision is in both camps, but the, these things that you can find in other cultures but were distinct in Israel made them different than the Canaanites. Why? Because God made a promise that from this people and from this land would come the Savior, so he needs to keep them around. And so he makes them culturally different. And you're like, that's nonsense. They should have a military that protects them. Well, that, you know, militaries come and go. And I'll ask you this. The Olympics will be in Paris in, in this summer. And when you're watching the Parade of Nations, which, by the way, is going to be on boats during the time of sailing. They plan to do that. It's kind of cool. Uh, tell me where the Jebusites are. 
or the Hivites, or the Ammonites, or the Moabites, or the Edomites, or any other uh, uh, group that we come across in the Old Testament. They're all gone. They're all, they're all, they've been swallowed up by other cultures. They're in the dustpin of history. Only two remain, Greece and Egypt, completely different languages and completely different cultures and completely different religions today. But they will be a contingent from Israel. It worked. All right. The catechetical ceremonial laws taught them something. Specifically, the unclean and clean distinction. All right, let's start listing things that made them unclean. Skin disease, a picture of, of sin for sure. Um, you know, but that's, th 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 there's also a practical thing about being quarantined there. Uh, Gentiles, okay, we already talked about the, the you know, the, 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 the special people don't eat with other people. We, we, we talked about that before already. Um, you have the, the different animals, okay, that's more of the cultural thing. But here are the ones that, that, that I think are, are catechetical in nature. Your period, by the way, the story of David, right, with Bathsheba and stuff, has to do with her cycle. It's, the Bible's gritty. So she is, she, she is unclean because of her period. And then, her, so Uriah goes to war. She has her period, she's unclean, then she has a baby. That's the problem David encounters. Now he has to cover it up, right? So just imagine, everybody knows your cycle. It was a very gritty, not private world. Yeah? So why aren't you in church today? Well, it's that time of the month. So your period, nocturnal emission, giving birth, and touching a dead body. Now notice the lessons catechetically from here. Anything that has to do with the cycle of life and death made you unclean. You cannot help but be unclean. You can't stop your cycle, and somebody's got to bury grandma. Someone's got to touch a dead body. And you cannot clean yourself. You have to go to an outside source, the priest, the temple, to make yourself clean. It's a sin. Ends in death. Nature, original sin, giving, given through conception and birth. You can't clean yourself. You have to go to the church to be cleansed. This was a profound daily picture of sin and grace, clean and unclean. And notice the idea of transfer. The dead body's unclean, it gets transferred to me. The blood's sort of unclean, it gets transferred to me. The semen's unclean, it gets transferred to me. Right? And so it's almost as if the picture there is you're, you have a contact with sinful, and then you are going to be sinful. We can take that the wrong way, but think about it. Sinful people give birth to sinful people, right? And you're unclean. By the way, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, bash on your Thanksgiving Day preaching, um, but uh, when you preach on the ten lepers, I don't think it has anything to do with Thanksgiving. So we have 10 lepers, uh, nine of them Jewish, one of them Samaritan. And they walk away from Jesus, and they are cleansed. And by the way, Jesus, what did Jesus tell them to do? Go show yourselves to the priest. So he says, follow the law of Moses when you, when you find yourself clean. I'm commanding you to do that. 
They weren't unthankful. There's nothing in the text that says that they're unthankful. You don't think they were thankful that they get their lives back? They're going to church. They're literally going to church, right? They're literally going to thank God as far as we know. The Samaritan comes back because he can't go to the temple. So what is the, the thing there? It's not, where are the other nine? You're, you know, the unthankful people that didn't come to church on our made-up religious holiday Thanksgiving. The problem was is that they went to the wrong place. Where do you find God in the Old Testament? Well, you go to the temple until Jesus is walking around. They went to the wrong place. That's a whole other thing that we, we don't really understand, holy ground and sacred places. That, that There's something profound there going on. So the story of going to, to be made ceremonially clean, that's a picture of sin, of course. Okay. So then think about, let's, let's do the story of Jesus at, with the widow at Nain and, his, and, his, um, and her, her son. Um, I think this is baptismal too. I may be stretching a little bit, um, you know, so um, save your allegory for, for later, that accusation. Um, you know the story of Nain, okay, it's a little town, and uh, we hear that the one and only son of the widow dies and is going to be resurrected. Now, I'm not saying it's a picture of Jesus, but yikes, you know? All right, the one and only son of a widow dies. In that culture, you mourned out loud. You mourned as a group. Another thing we do in the West, I think, that, that affects us, we, we, we don't mourn out loud or as a group. They mourned out loud as a group, and because it's a dead body, you have to get it out of the city, and you have to do it by 6 p.m. Sunday. So the emotions are raw. One and only son, she's helpless now. She's going to be a widow. She's going to be on welfare the rest of her life. It's all she's got. Um, uh, what a tragedy. And, and it's raw because we can't wait two days for the funeral. We have to have it now. So we are told that they process out of the town. This town has one gate. They're parading outside of town. But there's another procession, another parade coming to that town, to that same gate. It's a procession not of death, but a procession of life. Led by Jesus. And they come to the same gate, and something has to give. Now, even in our jaded modern culture, we still generally pull over to the side of the road for a funeral procession. And as jaded as you and my, and our culture may be, I can't think of somebody interrupting a funeral procession at a graveyard and going and touching the coffin. Can you imagine a stranger doing that? Especially in that culture, because now the... The, the uncleanness of the dead person is transferred to the person who touches it. So there are two competing uh, parades that day, a parade of death and a parade of life, and they come to an impasse at the town gate, and the parade of life's going to win that day. And why? Because Jesus is life-giving, and so he gives life to the dead. Another way to put it is he gives cleanliness and righteousness and holiness to the dead uncleanness. Remember your baptism again? When I said it was a processional of death? It was the main procession. And Jesus and his, and his hand through the pastor and the Holy Spirit in water interrupted that procession of, of, of death and miraculously gave life. Right? And there was a moment where something had to give. 
right? And you don't understand that unless you understand the clean-unclean distinction. I don't think we understand eating and table fellowship, nor do we really understand the idea and the power of baptism. And so I would go so far as to say that baptism is the fulfillment of the Old Testament washing rituals, much like Holy Communion has the connection to Passover in the Old Testament. And, and there, these are shadows that then when Jesus comes, they become the real deal. They're not the shadow pointing ahead to forgiveness. They give forgiveness. They give forgiveness. Okay. All right. All right. Um, let's go with, this is good timing. Let's, let's end with Naaman. Or not. Okay, you remember the picture. Naaman. I think this is baptismal too. So remember Naaman is, the, is the, the, the general in the army of Aram. And uh, he's, he's big stuff. He's big stuff. And Israel, the northern tribes, aren't so much big stuff. And we hear that they do little skirmishes like, like the, the Arameans come in and like take a town or whatever. They still do that in the movie. They send some rockets over there. And he, he steals a, a girl, and that girl becomes his wife's servant. Unnamed woman in scripture, who is remarkable. Because Naaman, her master, the one who has enslaved her, gets a skin disease, uncurable in the ancient world. And what does she do? She tells him about a cure, about a man, Elisha, in he, he can go and get cured. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? being so disrespected and being enslaved and still showing love. I, I don't know. Anyway, very Christ-like. So Naaman gets all the proper diplomatic papers because he can't just, the, the general of Russia can't just walk into Mayo Clinic. Yeah? He's got to have lots of diplomatic whatever. And so the king of Israel's like, because they're so small, like, of course, you know, just don't, you know, he's, he's, he's disturbed by this. So Naaman comes with his entourage, because of course he has an entourage, and he goes to Elisha, and Elisha, the old cranky guy, he, he like pulls the curtain, he's like, what do you want? Doesn't even come out. And he's like, I got a skin disease. He's like, ah, dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Whatever. And Naaman's like, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? And, and aren't, the, aren't the rivers of Araman greater than this muddy Jordan River? Are you kidding me? And his, his uh, advisors say, hey man, we traveled all this way, you might as well try it. <laughs> We've got nothing to lose. And then he does something very embarrassing for anybody, especially for a man in the ancient world. He stripped down and went into the, into the water. Remember, like my, my grandfather, maybe some of your grandparents or your, your father, depending on your age, how it'd be like 100 degrees in, in, in summer and they were still wearing polyester gray slacks. You did not take your pants off as a grown man back in the day. That's a little tidbit in the ancient world. That's a little tidbit that you did. And you know what grown men didn't do unless in war? They did not run. Uh, what story am I thinking about that gives us a wrinkle there? The prodigal son, the, the father, runs. Now, if, you run, if you're running in the ancient world as a man, what are you doing? Right? This is embarrassing. This was an act of, of love, of desperate love. I don't care who thinks, what anybody thinks of me, right? 
um, which is an example of love and God's love for us. He doesn't care about, well, how could God forgive that person? Okay, so Naaman's embarrassed by that, but he gets cured. By the way, what does he try to do? He tries to give a gift to Elijah. He tries to pay for it, right? He didn't quite get grace yet. But in this humbling, because it's humble to be washed. Remember, only the babies and the geriatrics get washed. You lose dignity when you have to be washed. And so this is God's, I would say, his modus operandi, his standard MO, is to use ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary ends. I would go so far as to say his standard mode of operation is to use physical means to accomplish spiritual ends. Not always. He can send down man and quail. He can, he can uh, perform a miracle. He can split the Red Sea. He can create out of nothing. But your, his interaction with you is going to be lowly, common, and physical. It's just words on a page. It's just sound waves from a mouth to eardrums. It's just a bit of water. It's just a little bit of bread and cheap wine. It's just you teaching. It's only you, the mother, creating life out of nothing, by the way. Yeah, I know physically we can explain motherhood. But the soul, God uses you to create a soul. It's not like there's a bunch of souls up there and God sends down a, a stork and puts it with a body. Just stop and think about that. How mothers, in that way, are the closest to God because they can create out of nothing. God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary causes or ends. Now, this is God's M.O., why? Um, let's do, uh, we're going to do the hiddenness of God in three minutes. All right. God is a God who hides, Isaiah tells us. By the way, the context there is Cyrus, the Persian king, is going to be the Messiah of the, he's going to be the savior of the, of the Jewish people by, by letting them back into the promised land. He's called, I think he's even called Messiah. And Isaiah's like, Cyrus? The Persian king, the awful tyrant? He's our savior. Surely you are a God who hides yourself. That's what he's saying. Right? Now, the hiddenness of God, however, in our lives is a paradox because he's hidden to be revealed. It's paradoxical. First of all, he can't come with the full glory because you know, then you would, you would be you know, blown away. So he has to hide that way. But he, he hides also so that he can be revealed to you. So uh, I never watched this movie, Mrs. Doubtfire, but this is what's going on here, right? Robin Williams' character, to be close to his children, hides under the mask of, of being a maid, a nanny, so he can be close to his children. So God hides under the mask of the pastor when he absolves you and says, I forgive you. It's God who forgives you. And it's his hand in baptism, and it's his body and blood but it's hidden under masks so that you can touch him without being blown away. And the place where he is the most hidden, the cross, is the place where he is the most revealed. Because there you see how serious he is about sin, 
but you also see how serious he is about mercy and love. It won't be your death, it'll be his own death. So Naaman learned a lesson that God hides in ordinary things. And the more you get that, uh, the the more you're going to see God lurking around every corner of your life, including in uh, remembrances of your baptism. Okay, Uh, we made it, we made it. Um, What we're going to do next time is we're going to, the next lesson, we'll get into the the New Testament, and I hope to run through that pretty quickly. And then the third hour, what I'd like to do is I'm going to give you some questions and and give some times with like small groups, and then uh, we'll discuss those questions. We'll not get to all of them, but we'll, we'll do something. They'll be a little bit more practical. And then I, I'm told the teachers are abandoning us. Um, so our, our lesson, that would be tomorrow. I think it would be fun to go through the Luther's baptismal rite. And, and, and since it, it would be familiar to, to, 